Good morning, Grace. Good to see you all today. Uh, I see a lot of familiar faces, and I see a lot of unfamiliar faces. In case you're wondering who I am, uh, I bring you greetings from Grace Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton. Uh, I'm Scott Rosencrans. I'm one of the elders over there, and uh, it's just a pleasure to be here today. I'm on the preaching rotation over there, but this is my first time up in front of this congregation. So my wife, Laura, and I started at Grace in 2001 and uh, migrated with the, the group over to Fullerton. So that's where we make our home. But one of the reasons we just love Grace so much is uh, ministries like Project Hope where normal people do the Lord's work together. And uh, we're just so thankful for that ministry and our many dear friends who have adopted through that ministry. And boy, just seeing those videos has been such an emotional uh, roller coaster. Actually, yesterday I was actually at Jack Mitchell's funeral service and our actually memorial service here. And it was uh, very uh, painful and sad, but also so joyful. And so I feel like I'm a bit of an emotional wreck right now, just after yesterday and this. It's so, such a, a mix of emotions. That's a uniquely Christian way of, of thinking, uh, uh, entering into the darkness and the difficulty and searching God's redem- redemptive purposes. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 15. And starting at verse 33, and follow along as I read a very familiar passage that is also deeply sad and tragic and also uh, in the midst of that offers us hope. Follow along as I read. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And There were also many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for preserving your word for us that we might receive this important uh, passage, one that is so central to what you have done in 
uh, our individual lives, Lord, but also in history. Father, help us to apply this truth revealed today to our hearts. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth as we study your word together. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So about a month ago, I was uh, at the Grace Men's uh, Retreat and I sat across the table from Mike Wise at breakfast and he said to me, so I hear you're preaching on defending the fatherless Sunday. And I said, I did not know that. Uh, wow. And then, you know, the internal narrative in my mind is start, starting to freak out a little bit about this experience. I'm thinking, man, I need prayer. And, um, and because I know what an important Sunday this is uh, as we draw attention not just to the very real and, and present needs of orphans and the lost in the world, but also I knew the passage I would be uh, preaching uh, brings up a problematic or seemingly problematic idea, and that is that Christ was forsaken by his Father. And the juxtaposition of this day and Christ's uh, quoting Psalm 22 just seemed heavy and weighty to me. Um, and so, yeah, pray for me. I still have that, that experience right now. Pray for me uh, um, as I try to, to walk into this. Each picture has a focal point, that place that draws interest and attention, uh, that place that attracts the eye. Today, in this passage, in the Gospel of Mark, we look at the very focal point of our faith, of the religion of Christianity. And we believe also that this is the focal point of history. That all of history would meet here is odd. The vast linear path of time past and time future would focus here on a hill outside of the gates of Jerusalem where suspended between heaven and earth is the crux of all human fortune. We see on a cross Jesus of Nazareth, a Galilean rabbi suffering a humiliating death utterly alone. But this is important not just because this is the founder of our religion. It's important because on the cross is God incarnate, dying. And that shatters so many categories for us, doesn't it? God dying, God as man, God suffering. And yet this is the central moment for us as Christians and it's a familiar moment, too. It's hard to defamiliarize ourselves from it. I mean, how many thousands of times have you seen a cross in your life? How many hundreds of times have you seen this cross right behind me? Add to that the images you've seen in art and in film, adorned on jewelry, bookmarks, your Bibles, ornamenting your home. It's so familiar. And it should be because our faith simply would not exist if Jesus uh, had not died in the way that he did. You know, all religions are, to one degree or another, 
dependent on their founder's birth. But Christianity is dependent on our founder's uh, death. Now think of the cross again. This time, think of it shrouded under the cover of deep darkness, only being able to see its edges, occasionally coming into sharper view when a torch passes by. It's dark. And you can hardly make out the shadows some 50 yards away from you. You occasionally hear one of the men gasping for air, and you're scared. For it's not late at night. In fact, it's the middle of the day. It's the rainy season, so this isn't a dust storm, and on the calendar there's no eclipse. It is as if the very light of the world has turned away from earth. So this focal point, this macabre scene of torture and death is made even more strange for its darkness. The focal point is the death of Christ. We preach Christ crucified. We're commanded to be baptized and reenact death, burial, and resurrection. We're commanded to eat the Lord's body and drink his blood in the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate tonight. It's central to who we are, what we believe, and what we do. This death shows God the Father and Jesus the Son's great love for the world, a love so great that for a time their relationship was severed. Jesus had to feel alone the full weight of rejection and even the wrath of his Father. So as we look today at this Gospel of Mark, we're looking at it under the cover of darkness. If you're taking notes, you'll see that I've given you a simple outline in your bulletin. And so let's begin with the first point, forsaken in the darkness. Our text says that this took place in the sixth hour and very quickly moves to the ninth hour. Translated onto our clocks, this would be from noon, about right now, to 3 p.m. And this darkness is not natural, and this is not some overcast day. For the darkness, our text says here, is over the whole land. Unnatural darkness in the Bible is virtually synonymous with God's judgment. If we look back through the prophets and even look forward to Revelation, there are many, many passages that suggest that darkness and God's judgment uh, are, are connected. 1 Samuel 2, 9 and 10 says this, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. Jeremiah 23, 11 and 12 says, both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. 
and looking forward in Revelation chapter 16, 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. The cursed of the cursed and cursed the God of heaven with their pains and sores, for they did not repent of their deeds. This darkness is supernatural. And if the heavens and earth declare God's glory, we have to say in some way the heavens and earth declare God's glory here, but it's very hard to see. For the heavens are blotted out and the earth is in a wasteland, Golgotha, a hill named the Skull. And we see Jesus in dim suffering, in shadow. In fictional literature, oftentimes authors will use a device called the pathetic fallacy. It's where they craft nature in such a way to uh, mimic in, in some way what a character feels. Now, this is not literature, but in this history, we see the darkness represents God's wrath and God's judgment. And these are concepts that we don't love, do we? These are two traits of God that seem opposed to our culture in general. Uh, I mean, think of the popular religious fiction of the day. You don't see books called Eat, Pray, Love, Judgment. Blue-like wrath. We don't. We downplay those. As a matter of fact, um, I want to think, to what degree is this just generally something that our culture wants to avoid, and, and to what degree is it something that more generally people want to avoid? And here's the conclusions I, I, I've come to. Um, here, if you'll look, you'll see a chart here. This comes from Google's Ngram uh, maker. I didn't make this chart. Google did. So Philip Massey earlier said, this is the first time a statistical chart has been in a sermon. And I said, yeah, and if you knew my relationship with math, you'd be even more surprised. You know, so we, um, but in Google, you can search the frequency of words and all these libraries of text that Google has um, uh, digitized. And so let's take this word, faith, right? This is common. And I'm just going back to 1800. I figured 200 years was enough for us. So um, we can see faith was uh, really big in about 1841, and uh, a historian here might be able to even surmise why. Uh, hope. Hope has a, had a bit of a downward path, hasn't it? Love. Tumultuous. I, can, I, can, I attribute that bump at the end to most 80s music. Um, um, but then we get to uh, things like judgment much lower frequency uh, interestingly enough it was much more closely aligned to faith in the 1800s and here we are at 2000 wrath There's that math con concept where a line gets closer and closer to zero. Um, we don't talk about wrath. We don't think about wrath. We don't like wrath. It seems like, relatively speaking, uh, 
we really haven't if you're looking at how much people are writing about the subject. But what that illustrates is that we're prone, we have blind spots. Our proneness is to avoid subjects like uh, judgment and wrath. And yet here at the cross, this is exactly what the darkness gives us. It gives us God's judgment and wrath. Christ on the cross is suffering under the judgment of God and the very firmament has turned black and apocalyptic and the darkness testifies to his judgment. But the judgment is on his son. And Jesus feels this judgment He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not merely suffering physically and temporally in the darkness. He is forsaken in the darkness. Now, forsaken is an uncommon word. You probably haven't used the word in casual conversation recently. If we had to pick a modern equivalent of that word, we might go for the word rejection, that's relatable, right? We've all suffered or experienced rejection. Uh, there are the normal forms of rejection, not making the cut for the team, for instance. That was my junior high experience for both years. Um, not making the cast for the play. Those sting, right? We get older, we don't get into the grad school, we don't get the job, we don't get that grant but there are relational ways that we feel rejected too, right? Being excluded from a group of people, being the loser, the very painful words, let's just be friends, or moving towards a spouse or any number of uh, forms, in any number of forms of intimacy and feeling rejected. While normal, these moments are painful, And as painful as these moments of rejection are, rejection isn't even the same thing as being forsaken. Forsakenness is outright abandonment. Think of the most intimate relationship in which you have been known and loved by another person. Think of the security that relationship brings. Think of how the rest of the world can be really falling apart, but if that relationship is secure, you just know things are going to be okay, you're going to make it through. That might be a parent relationship, sibling, spouse, friend, the Lord. Whatever relationship you're imagining, explode that relationship into eternity, into infinity. Imagine that being a timeless and perfect relationship, a trusting bond that knows no beginning, a bond that's always been so central to your very identity that you would not know who you are without that. This is the bond that Jesus, the eternal son, had with the Father, a perfect bond of love and unity. So no metaphor of rejection or abandonment can even come close to that experience. 
You know, some people who uh, don't understand Jesus at the cross might point to this and say, this is just a case of uh, divine child abuse. We owe those people an explanation. Those people don't understand the necessity for this. If this was merely one way, it seems, uh, one way of many, it seems uh, egregious. People who levy that claim have an incorrect understanding of sin. So we need to talk about sin because in the forsakenness of darkness, we can't talk about or understand it without understanding sin. In these past few weeks, we've been looking at this narrative of Jesus' trial and betrayal, uh, his crucifixion last week, and now his death, and and we can point to so much human sin. Uh, Abuse, certainly pride, unbelief, narcissism, lies, mockery, profanity, cowardice, injustice, the list goes on. And when we look at this story, the story of the perfect man, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, uh, we see sin in sharp contrast, and it's, it's horrible. It's ugly. And even in our passage today, the ugliness of sin uh, persists. Jesus calling out to God, uh, the words Eloi, Eloi, uh, probably sounded in his suffering uh, very much like Elijah. And Elijah, for lack of better words, was kind of like a patron saint who would rescue eventually. Um, and so in mockery, they, they question, is Elijah going to come take you off of this uh, cross? Even the offer of vinegary wine, soldier's wine, uh, could be something uh, to revive him, but not necessarily to dull the pain, maybe to revive him so he would prolong and experience his suffering more. The taunting, the sadism, these are continued graphic pictures of human cruelty. But we have a problem, and it's a very human problem. We tend to look at sin like this, or at least I do, and we compartmentalize it, and we don't relate to it as if this is what we do in any way. We look at the ugly sins and we justify ourselves by saying we're not that bad. Those who are at the cross, I'm sure, felt completely justified in their sin. And this is, this is human nature just from, from page one, justifying our sin. And God, by his grace, intervenes into the world and establishes covenants with sinners in order to help them understand what sin is and provide a way for them to dwell with the holy. Sin is unholiness, and God, by his very nature, cannot dwell with it. The clean cannot dwell with the unclean. And by his grace, he gave Uh, leaders like Moses who would bring the law to people so that they would even know what sin was. And by his grace, he would establish the sacrificial system in the law so that despite their failing at sin, there could be a way for them to atone for sin. For the wages of sin, as we know, are death, and only death can pay for sin. And God made a way there. And yet these same people, his people, would obscure and adulterate the law. 
they would add to it and they would twist it or they would forget it. And so God would send his prophets to call them to account, to call them back and still, still, they were wayward. Eventually God himself through the prophet Ezekiel says, you know what, I myself will be their shepherd. And as John tells us in his gospel, he came to his own. He is that light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, much of Jesus' own ministry uh, dealt with recognizing sin. He inaugurated his ministry with the words, repent and believe in the gospel. Recognize the sin. And the truth of Jesus' teachings, as we find in the other gospels, is that our sin is just as condemnable. Our lust is adultery. Our hatred of our brother is to kill him. The law of Christ establishes that we're all sinners. We're all lawbreakers. The law distills down to this, love the Lord God with your heart, your soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here Jesus is on the cross, both God and neighbor. The law of God condemns us. And we need a sacrifice. You know, this points to something that I don't know, maybe has always been obvious to you, but it's something I've grown to uh, understand and appreciate more over the years. Christianity's pretty uh, skeptical about human nature. We have a, a pretty pessimistic view of human nature. Um, but by God's grace, if you know the Lord, you have a very optimistic view about God's nature. And that's good. It's a good thing. So God forsook Jesus because Jesus willingly stepped in He became the shepherd, he became the lamb, and he took on our sin to bear uh, uh, our price. And he had to be utterly alone and separated to do this. And because of this, on this dark day, on this darkest of days, there is also hope. There's hope in the darkness You know, last week, Rob mentioned Psalm 22. That's the psalm from which we get this uh, last words that Mark recorded of Jesus. My God, why why hast thou forsaken me? And in that psalm, uh, we see it begins with deep lamentation. David, a thousand years ago, expresses this uh, deep lamentation, this experience of being forsaken. But the psalm ends with triumph. And if you map this psalm onto the last chapters of Mark, it's remarkable, the similarities. You think, how how could David possibly have penned these lines uh, without the aid of the Holy Spirit? And so we have hope. Jesus issues forth his last cry. It's a cry that is strong, unusually strong for a crucifixion. Uh, Crucifixion uh, was designed to slowly asphyxiate and wear someone away so they can't breathe. The 
commentators disagree on what exactly this cry meant. Was it a cry of victory? Was it a cry of strength? Was it a cry of anguish? Uh, Was it a a particular uh, cry of uh, recognizing his separation from his father? Whatever this cry was, it actually leads to our first recorded uh, human uh, declaration of Jesus' identity as God. So without being able to hear that cry ourselves, it's hard to know exactly what was in the cry. But this centurion concludes that this is the Son of God. Centurion would be uh, a soldier over a hundred other soldiers. He would have risen through the ranks and tested himself as a bona fide uh, uh, Roman. And this centurion stationed at uh, Golgotha certainly had crucified people before. He'd seen this and he saw something remarkable here. But between his confession and Jesus' cry, we see this reference to the curtain in the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. And this is a miracle that points to something very important, something that should give us great hope. Now, there are actually two curtains this could have been. The the first, and I think most people would uh, in this room suggest, the inner curtain separating the holy of holies from the inner court of the uh, uh, temple, the curtain uh, through which only the high priest could go once a year into the presence of God to atone for the sins of the people. Yeah, Hebrew 10's the, uh, in Hebrew 10, 19 and 20, familiar passage, the author says, therefore, brothers, since we have great confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, it seems like, a passage like this would point to that inner curtain. But there was an outer curtain too on the outside of the temple, one that would be visible to the public, one that uh, ostensibly, if, if, you, if someone saw that curtain torn uh, in two, you know, word could uh, get over to Golgotha to know that happened. We don't know exactly um, if or how this centurion heard this, but that temple, uh, that curtain being torn in two would would most likely be uh, the first indication of the destruction of the temple which Jesus uh, uh, prophesied. Now these would be giant, ornate, thick curtains, something that no human hand could tear in two. Even the Christian ministry, the power team, guys that tear apart phone books couldn't uh, uh, tear apart this this curtain, okay? Okay. I don't know which, which, it, which curtain it is, but I will say this. Either curtain points to a same fundamental truth, that the blood of not a lamb, the lamb satisfied the law. That Jesus has, uh, Jesus' death and atoning perfect sacrifice, infinitely valuable sacrifice, enough uh, where one drop of his blood could atone. Uh, the sins of the world, that sacrifice completed the sacrificial law that anyone who would call on the name of the Lord and accept his sacrifice for their sins would be saved. This is very good news. And it's not just any sacrifice. It's a sacrifice for all people. You know, actually, very interestingly, we see 
some, some common themes here to the first Passover. The ninth plague in the first Passover was the plague of darkness. And then the Passover, where the, the blood of the lamb sprinkled over the doorposts would save the first sons of God's people. And here, the blood of the lamb who was the first son can save all people who will call on his name. And we see the first fruits of that in a Roman centurion. Someone who probably doesn't have the cultural knowledge to even understand the sacrificial system and get what that's all about, even if he did, an outsider, someone estranged from God's people, a fish-shaking orphan. The only other time that we see that particular confession of Jesus Christ being uh, Son of God is at Jesus' own baptism where the heavens open up and the Lord declares, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Here, shrouded in darkness, a man, an oppressor, an abuser, makes a, a similar confession. And it is by God's spirit that both those miracles are accomplished. And so there's great, great hope that we have, brothers and sisters. In application, I wanted to focus on this notion of um, being an orphan, and I asked Kenny to kind of help me think through it, um, and uh, I couldn't have said it better myself, so I'm just going to read what he said, okay? Um, He said, I'm reminded of a Russell Moore quote, and he's paraphrasing, uh, that we're born orphans because of sin, the world's one big orphanage, and because we are children of wrath, we are unadoptable. So what Jesus does on the cross is he becomes unadoptable in our place. The rightful son, the true heir, lays aside his privilege and becomes unadoptable so that many sons may be brought to glory. This is great, great news. And so Kenny says this is one reason why we ought to be leading the charge in rescuing orphans is because we understand in a much greater way what it means to go from orphan to heir. So we can save orphans who are orphaned out of innocence into our homes so that they can take on our names. But there's a greater reason. All have sinned and all orphans are estranged from God. And we have an opportunity not only to give them earthly fathers and families and homes, but heavenly ones as well. And so there's hope in the darkness, and we can follow our Lord through the darkness knowing that he has paid our cost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercies being new every morning and your faithfulness at night. Thank you for the many ways you watch over and guide us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking uh, the burden of our sin, paying the full cost that we might know you. Help us to uh, live and act out of that truth by your spirit and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.